Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. John chapter 13, verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Our second reading can be found on page 1153. It's from 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. One Corinthians, chapter 13, starting at verse 1. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies they will cease, where there are tongues they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Kirsty, thanks very much indeed. Do keep that uh, Bible passage open in front of you as we continue to look through um, this uh, series, really, on, uh, on what it means to be 
church, what it means to be the people of God, uh, what church is. And uh, this morning we do think about uh, being loving uh, people who love. Let me pray for one another. Our Father, we do pray for each other. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to be able to focus and think, but not just to think, but for our hearts to be changed by your Holy Spirit, for our hearts to be warmed, and for you to do that transforming work in us that only you can do, that we may indeed be increasingly a people who love one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There is a handout if you like these things, uh, so do uh, dig that out and uh, it will show you where we're going in the next uh, few moments. Uh, When I worked at uh, All Souls Laying on Place in in central London, it wasn't unusual for us as we gathered on a Sunday to interview people about how they became Christians. We do it here from time to time. We did it a bit more often there. As people stood up, I expected them to say something like, I turned up at church, I heard the preacher explain the gospel, I came to Christianity Explored, I understood the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I repented and believed. That was kind of what I was expecting as people stood up to give their testimony. What I actually often heard was this. I turned up at church and I experienced something I'd never heard, uh, experienced before. People were so kind and friendly to me. People I'd never met and who I had nothing to do with, nothing in common with, went out of their way to make me welcome. And as I got to know Christians, I saw the way they cared for and loved each other in practical ways. And I was so impressed, I wanted to know more. Oh, as we dug deeper, for sure, having an understanding of the cross and resurrection was crucial. But often the thing that grabs people and intrigued them and made them wanted to know more about Christianity was the quality of relationships in the church family. Simply the way people loved each other. That, of course, shouldn't be a surprise to us. It's what we heard from the words of Jesus just now in our first reading. All men will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Those words of Jesus caused uh, the Christian theologian, philosopher and pastor Francis Schaeffer to describe our love for one another as the final apologetic, uh, the final argument for the truth of Christianity. Something, in fact, you can't argue against. Those who've studied times of great revival in church history tell me that love among Christians is one of the crucial elements in a time of revival. Of course, revival happens as God, by his Holy Spirit, moves. Ultimately, it's his work. And there are a number of things that come together when any revival hits the church. But not least of all, it's the quality of loving relationships in the church family that draws people to the church, makes it so attractive to unbelievers draws people in in huge numbers. Again, that should be no surprise to us. We worship the God who is love, the God who within himself, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love one another with a selfless, self-giving, other-person-focused, sacrificial love. That is going on in the Trinity, always has from eternity. Each person of the Trinity wanting the best for the other. So, of course, the church should reflect that. And, of course, when we do, there is not a more attractive experience on earth. Now, for that reason, I long for Christchurch Forward to be a loving church. 
by our lives pointing to the God we worship and adore, the God who is love. I think it's fair to say that um, churches have reputations in the community. I guess we have a reputation. Some people tell me we have a reputation for being a Bible teaching church. Wider afield, people might be saying we've got a reputation for being a, a church planting church. Now, those things are good and great. But if I long for us to have a reputation for being anything, it is to be a loving church. So that when people come among us, they see the way we love one another. And they find themselves on the receiving end of that love as they are welcomed and embraced. For love is the truest mark of a real Christian community. And the ultimate mark of, the, of true Christian maturity as well. Now that was something that the church in Corinth uh, had to learn. The church in Corinth had a reputation as being a, a gifted church. There's no need to turn it up. But uh, this is how the book begins to Corinth. The letter to Corinth begins. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul writes, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. They were a remarkably gifted group of people. But as gifted as they were, as you read through the book through the letter to the Corinthians, you see they had many problems. And one of the problems was the way they kind of measured spirituality. They did it according to their gifts. Look with me at uh, chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul writes, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now that could be just as easily translated, now about being spiritual it seems you see the church in Corinth measured how spiritual they were by the gifts the spiritual gifts they had for them the thing they particularly focused on was what we might call the ecstatic gifts gifts like tongues and prophecy and miracle working and healing in Corinth in the church in Corinth if you had those kind of gifts you were looked up to as being really spiritual being a really mature Christian and so amongst the church in Corinth there was this longing this ambition to have and to exercise those particular ecstatic charismatic gifts people with those gifts were put on a pedestal looked up to now here at Christ Church Forward, I think it's true of every church, um, different churches sort of look to different things, different spiritual gifts as being the major thing. Here we tend not to look to the ecstatic spiritual gifts as Corinth did. We tend to prize, I think, the gift of Bible teaching and of, and of knowledge and of evangelism. And so our danger is that as we look at people who have those gifts, we see them as being truly the spiritual, spiritually mature people among us. But as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we learn that uh, firstly, our first point uh, on the handout, that love is the measure of spiritual maturity. Love is the measure of spiritual maturity. This is verses 1 to 3. See, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 into a, a context. So often it's just read out of context. He, read it, he wrote it into this context of a culture of prizing certain gifts as being the mark of spiritual maturity 
So with that in mind, listen again to what he writes, verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. It is very clear what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. You might, might, might have the most remarkable, ecstatic, charismatic gifts. But if you don't have love, then you're nothing. You are not spiritually mature at all. Now, please, this is really important. This is not to write off or denigrate spiritual gifts. Indeed, at the beginning of chapter 14, Paul encourages the Corinthians to eagerly desire them. So please don't hear me saying this morning that spiritual gifts aren't, aren't important. They are important. They are gifts from God given to the church to build up his people, to encourage his people. Spiritual gifts are important. But the point in chapter 13 is that spiritual gifts and abilities are not the mark of genuine spiritual maturity. Real maturity is seen in love. And so if I can put it this way, we should prize love above everything else. We should have an ambition, if we have an ambition to be anything at all, to be a loving church family. And indeed, when we see people who love in our church family, we should want to be like them. We should see love as the mark of spiritual maturity. Now, because chapter 13 was written into a specific situation in Corinth, where they were prizing specific gifts I've asked myself if this were being written to Christchurch forward what would Paul write to us today well let me ask you if this works it may not but see if this works would he write this if I can preach like the great preachers of old but have not love I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if I have the gift of teaching and can fathom all the mysteries of the interpretation of the most intricate passages of the Bible, and if I can lead a Bible study understanding every cross-reference and Old Testament allusion, and if I have the evangelistic gifts of Billy Graham but have not love, I am nothing. And if I'll go on church plants to difficult areas of the city, and if I give all my money to the building for the future project but have not love, I gain nothing. Is that what would be said to us? Well, I don't know. What I do know is that this is clearly teaching that love is the mark of genuine and true spiritual maturity, not my abilities and not my spiritual gifting. And indeed, love must influence everything I do. This is about more than spiritual gifts. This is new to me, this thought just this week. Verse three, you see, talks about incredible self-sacrificing philanthropy, giving all I possess to the poor. And verse 3 also speaks of remarkable personal martyrdom, surrendering my body to the flames. So listen, even zeal and a readiness to die for the cause are lacking something when there is not love. As I say, it's a new thought to me really from this passage. I must have read it many times before, but it's been a huge challenge to me this week. Because it's, I think God has done a work in me that he's, forced me to look back to moments in my life when I've been ready to kind of go anywhere and do anything for Jesus, when I felt that burning zeal in me that has made me ready to give up everything for Jesus. But as I've read this this week, and as I've looked back to some of those terms, to some of those times, I've, I realise 
that actually there's been an abrasiveness in me, even an air of superiority. I never verbalised it, but in my zeal and enthusiasm, deep down I thought, look how spiritual I am. I'm prepared to give up everything for God. And I might have even looked at others and thought, I'm better than you because you're not ready to give up everything for him. Now you see, that kind of arrogance comes when a zeal and readiness for sacrificial living is not accompanied by love. Now that kind of zealousness isn't attractiveness at all and it certainly doesn't honour God. That's what he's saying in verse 3, isn't he? Now again, this is not to put down zeal and sacrificial living. The church in the West needs a lot more of it. There is far too much apathy and half-heartedness in the Christian church today. Oh, that there were more who were ready to go anywhere and do anything for the Lord. But do you see, having that attitude without love is ugly. It leads us to be all puffed up and full of pride. And so without love, we are nothing. And we're certainly not spiritually mature, even if we're ready to die for Jesus. So beware prizing spiritual gifts or spiritual zeal without love, says Paul. Love is the measure of spiritual maturity. Now second and and over the page on the handout, love is, well, love is verses four to seven according to this passage. Look, the Bible says a lot more about what love is, but just for now, love is verses four to seven. And as we read verses four to seven, note that love here is not defined but described. It's not an emotion but an action. Uh, And I'm quite pleased because I'm not particularly tactile that despite what the children said on the screen, love is not giving people a hug or a kiss. It's not sentimental. It's behavioural and extraordinarily practical. Verse four. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. Now again, remember, these words are are not written into a vacuum, they're written into a context. This is all tied up with getting a right view of what it means to be spiritually mature. Love is patient then. You see, when I think that spiritual maturity is defined by my particular spiritual gifting, I will find myself impatient with those who don't have the same gifts, See, if I think that evangelism and Bible teaching are the real marks of spiritual maturity, I'll be impatient with people who can't lead another to Christ or can't teach the Bible clearly. But love doesn't teach, doesn't think that way. Love will say, I've been given certain gifts, you've been given others, and I'm going to rejoice in those gifts. That was what we were looking at last week in 1 Corinthians 12. Love celebrates the gifts and abilities that others have and values other people. So verse four, love is patient. And love is kind. So real love doesn't merely bear with someone, patiently putting up with them. Love is more than that. Love is quick to offer kindness. But you see, when I think I'm spiritually mature because I have the gifts that are really prized, that leads me to be proud and boastful, verse 4. And it sees me looking down on those who don't have those gifts. Oh, that's a fine comment to say as I stand up here in the pulpit. I am literally looking down. Well, not on you up there, of course. But you see the point. If you 
um, are one of those who doesn't have the gifts that everyone thinks are important, you will start to envy those who do have those gifts. That's verse 4. Do you see the danger of measuring spiritual maturity by giftedness or by abilities? It means we don't treat each other with kindness and dignity. But, verse 5, love is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. All those things in verse 5 begin to happen when we think certain people are spiritual and others aren't. Check it out sometimes. My, my guess is that you are never rude to people you admire or respect. I used to work with um, John Stott, one of the most respected um, Bible teachers of the 20th century. I can't remember ever being rude to him. Of course not, because I admired him. I respected him. We're only rude to people who we think are lower than us, less important than us. So again, if in the church family we believe or give the impression that those with certain gifts and abilities are really important and really spiritually mature, we will inevitably view others who, as less important if they don't have those gifts or abilities. And that is a, a short step then to being rude to them. But love never does that. And it's the same with being self-seeking in verse 5. I am self-seeking, I am selfish when I think that I am the bee's knees and the cat's whiskers. When I think I'm so great, I feel justified in pushing myself forward and pushing you down because I'm so worth it and you're not. And verse 5, I am easily angered when I think highly of myself. Is that not the case? Because when I have an overinflated self-importance about me, And then when things don't go my way, I think to myself, how could that person do that to me? How dare that person say that to me because I'm so important? See, test your heart. If you're easily angered, it's because you have a very high opinion of yourself. But on the other hand, verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is ready to take personal affront without retaliation just think of the parent-child relationship think how often children say and do hurtful things to their parents in those rebellious teenage years in those moments when they're frustrated by their parents and frustrated with life those moments when they lash out I think back to my teenage years and I'm horrified when I remember some of the things that I said to my mum and dad but they didn't hold a grudge they kept no record of wrongs, verse 5. They forgave me because they loved me. So do you see how beautiful this is, how holding love up as the mark of spiritual maturity changes the way we live and act towards one another? Verse 6, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Uh, Some... Christians, some churches can be very prone to that kind of wrong thing, appearing to take delight in listing all the things that are wrong. All the things that are wrong in their church. All the things that are wrong with the leadership. All the things that are wrong with another church. Now the thing is, when we, when we list that, when we make that list, there may be truth in it. Sometimes there are things that are wrong. 
But the point here is that love doesn't delight in those things. Yeah, wrong things need to be addressed, but that isn't the issue here. The issue here is when we love pointing out all the wrong things. We know why we do it. We do it when we think we're great and we think we have the right to criticise others. Or we do it when we realise that we're not that great and we're so insecure that we feel we need to point out the problems in others in order to push them down so that we can raise ourselves up. But love doesn't do that. It does not delight in evil, verse 6, but rejoices with the truth. A loving church talks more about the good things, the truthful things, the wholesome things, than listing the problems that are around. And it is always like this with love. You see, always is the word that's repeated in verse 7. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And again, we know this in a a loving parent-child relationship, whether you're a parent or a child, you know that parents protect and persevere and always hope, hoping beyond hope, hoping for the best, even when the best doesn't look very probable. That's love. And being around people like that and being part of a church family like that is a wonderful thing. It is to begin to experience something of the love of the one true living God. Love then is the defining mark of being spiritually mature. Or maybe a better word, love is the mark of godliness. That is to be like God because he is love. This is to be like him. And of course, to love like this can only come from him. Which is why Don Carson writes, uh, the quote is on the handout. The various spiritual gifts, as important as they are and as highly as Paul values them, can all be duplicated by pagans, by unbelievers. This quality of love cannot be. This is why Jesus himself declares it to be the distinguishing characteristic of his followers, for it is this quality of love he presupposes when he declares, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This love in verses four to seven, this quality of love, this most far-reaching kind of love only comes from the Holy Spirit working in us. It cannot be duplicated by the world, says Carson. That is not to say, incidentally, that only Christians love and can love. Of course, that's not true. It's this quality of love in verses 4 to 7, shown not just to our blood relatives or to people we like, but shown to everyone that really only can come from God working in us and through his Holy Spirit. Love is the measure of spiritual maturity. Secondly, love is, verses 4 to 7. And thirdly, love will last forever. That is the big point of verses 8 to 12. See, verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when perfection comes the imperfect disappears. In this section, as you read through verses 8 to 12, you see it's pointing us forward to that final day when we will begin to enjoy eternity with God forever. On that day, prophecy will cease. There'll be no need for the spiritual gift of prophecy any longer. 
And knowledge will cease. This is the particular spiritual gift of knowledge, kind of having insights into things. We won't need that gift anymore on that final day when we're face to face with God. Uh, Just as there won't be any need for the gift of uh, Bible teaching or evangelism in eternity. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not going to be those things. For the second half of verse 12, then we will see God face to face. We will fully know him. The point is simple. Spiritual gifts won't be needed in eternity. But love, love will be oozing through all the relationships we enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be a place of perfect love. We will have been changed to be what we should be and finally and fully we will love one another and love God and be loved by him in his presence forever. And so you see as we look forward to that day we see clearly that spiritual gifts as important as they are they will be nothing on that day to us anymore. They won't be needed. We won't even think about them. They will pale into insignificance. But love, on the other hand, love will last. More than that, it will be central forever. So we must make love the measure of spiritual maturity and godliness in the church family now because it will last forever. Love is the thing. Well, finally, what will being a loving church family look like? What will it be to have loved, love lived out in our church family? Well, let me point out, it doesn't mean being perfect. That is clear from verses four to seven. It means being patient and kind with people who don't always get it right. It means keeping no record of wrongs. You see, often real love is not seen in perfection. It's seen in the way we react to things that are tough. And it's not about whipping up an emotion either. I mean, that would be awful if we had to kind of whip up some sort of feeling for one another. Love is listed here as practical. It's worked out in actions. It it is in patient kindness, in protecting people and persevering with people, sticking with people. You do that, you're loving. You don't have to feel anything. I mean, actually, you might feel something, but that's not the point. And crucially, love means not measuring people by their gifts and ability to contribute in some way. You're not valuable because you can do something. We were thinking about that in chapter 12. Love says you are important even if you don't have a prominent role. The Bible has so much more to say about how we should love one another. This is not the only chapter there is to say on that. Uh, in fact, there is a terrific chapter in Graham Bynan's book, uh, God's New Community. Indeed, if you, we've got some copies of this uh, over in the church centre, but it doesn't have the same cover as that. So it's got a white cover, so don't look out for this kind of cover. In chapter six, he writes a chapter called All You Need Is Love. He borrowed that, of course, from someone else, but still, good, good title. And I commend it to you as you think about how to work this out in your small groups in the next couple of weeks. But here's just a few thoughts as we close. Love means going out of my way for others. Love means inconvenience. Love means sacrifice. Love means being other person focused. Love means being more concerned for their needs than for my own. 
And I list those things because that's how Jesus was right through his life and supremely at the cross. If we want to know what love is, look at Jesus. He has shown us his supreme love for us and he's then shown us how to live, how to love. And I want to say as I've been preparing this, I rejoice in seeing that kind of love being shown among us here at Christ Church Forward. I think of a couple who right now have significant personal pressures on them and yet they have willingly opened up their home to another Christian in real need. I think of another couple who open their home every week to invite people in for meals. Many of the people they have round for meals are people who really struggle in life. I think of those who are involved every week with the soup run. All through the year, in all weathers, they help those who are homeless and those who have very little. I think of those who visit people who are too old or infirm to come to church on a Sunday or anything midweek. People who are lonely and feel isolated get a visit. Makes all the difference to them. And I think of the countless acts of kindness as people take meals to others who are struggling and who help parents who feel overwhelmed because they're at that stage of life with a young family. And those who make a telephone call or send a text to encourage someone. And those who are busy and don't have any time but who sacrificially give money to help others. And those who every week look out for people in this gathering. What a difference it is when, what a difference it makes when somebody who's come in here and doesn't really know someone, someone else spots them and welcomes them and talks to them. I think of others leading the children's work and giving their time to small talk and commotion midweek where they gently get to know people on the edges of church and share time with them. And I think of our small groups and how people look out for each other and share life with each other. So much of this goes on throughout the church family. And I'm in the privileged position of hearing about it and hearing what a difference it makes to people. That kind of loving is true spiritual maturity. And so if we have a, a reputation for anything, wouldn't it be good to, know, to be known as being a loving church? Not for our sakes, not because we need to have a reputation, but because to be loving is to be true to the God we adore, the one who is himself love. And when people see that kind of love shared among us, it tells them that we really are his disciples. And it really is the most attractive thing on earth. And wonderfully, it draws men and women and boys and girls into knowing the one true, living, loving God for themselves, where they can know as the hymn writer puts it, love divine, all love's excelling. Let's pray together. Let me just leave a moment of silence. And in the silence, two things you might like to do. One would be to give thanks to God. Give thanks to God for the way that others have loved you. The other thing to do would be to ask him to help you to be more loving towards others. Maybe he's laid one thing on your heart and you think, I'm going to do that. Now would be a good time to cement that into your mind and heart. A moment of silence.